Today is the day to wake, work, and win. Welcome to The Standard. I think we ha- are having a similar, uh, I feel like a Canadian winter. It has been oh, no. epically, brutally cold. <laughs> yeah, a lot of a lot of negative temperatures, negative 30 wind chills. Just awful. So I grew up in Fort St. John, which is northern Canada. Minus 40 was pretty common. Oh. Um, I spent uh, two years in Grand Prairie, which is north and out on the plains. There was a stretch where we had kind of three or four days in a row with, with the wind chill. It was minus 100. No, see, that's not from humans. It's easy. That's not for easy. Tom might complain more about being cold than anyone I've ever met. I just won't ever go outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't. Uh, I can't even imagine what that must feel. Like. I, I would want to feel it though, but I mean, I for a second, you'd want to feel it for a second. What is it? I mean, there's stories of like your eyes freezing right when it's that cold, right? Isn't there something? Yeah, it can. It it can get pretty nasty. This. Said exposed skin freezes in three seconds. Don't let your pets out; they won't come back. That <laughs> oh, <kind of laughs> <right>? dead. <laughs> yeah, that's a no for me. When it gets below zero, Tom doesn't like to go outside. Below thirty-two. Oh, below no thirty-two. Or below fifty with any wind. <laughs> but now your standards are a little too high. I know. Yeah, I'm originally from Chicago, and those winters are because you're right on the lake. You kind of get that that bone chilling, yeah. humid freezing. That's terrible. And uh, so yeah, this year. This year's been kind of Midwest, to be honest with you. I have listened to you on a few other podcasts, and uh, I kind of wanted to just start you out with a hardball. Uh Uh-oh. That that works. Perfect. (laughs) All right, so I'm going to use a hypothetical. We're we're both firefighters, and yeah, we've seen kind of the good and bad of leadership and, and had varying degrees of trust with our administration. So I'm going to use a hypothetical department where the morale is like a dumpster fire Uh on like a trash barge. (laughs) And so um, (laughs) how would you suggest that the the rank and file, because you've worked with Canadian military out in Afghanistan, and I'm sure you've seen situations much worse than this hypothetical fire department, but morale is really low. You have leadership that has been allowed to rise up in the ranks, regardless of how terrible they are. And and the line kind of feels lost. And it's full of great people who who are willing to, to go to the ends of the earth for the mission. But the people who are in charge just consistently break the trust of, of the people that are below them. Like how, what would be some yeah. suggestions you might have? Wow. Uh, <laughs> you're right. That is, a, that is the hard question. <laughs> I mean, people, uh, you have a lot more than just, uh, well, that was a great show. Yeah. Have a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I knew it was great people when you told me you were firefighters, right? I mean, it's a group of folks who put themselves at risk to protect others. And the challenge is, is that a lot of times we're seeing more and more leaders because of the structures that are in place, the context that, that we're embedded in. We're seeing more and more people rise to leadership positions who really don't give a crap about anybody but themselves. Why do you think that is? Um, I mean, that kind of mirrors society, right? I mean, it's, I think society's gotten a little bit more selfish in the last few generations, right? I mean, less service, less service-oriented, right? You don't, yeah. talking, you know, you don't, you don't see many people shoveling their neighbor's you know, driveway anymore, right? It's like, I got mine. That's it. Well, so for me, trust is a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability, right? And uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. And there's a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with, each of us. And if we go beyond that threshold, we don't trust. And if we're beneath it, then we do. And so what that means is that if uncertainty is high, then vulnerability has to be fairly low. And as that relationship gets deeper, the range of vulnerability we can tolerate starts to grow. So people who are stepping into leadership roles 
more and more tend to be those who who aren't as concerned about the people that they live with, the people that they love, the people that they're surrounding them. They're more concerned with their own self-interest because they're not as vulnerable. You know, a lot of people that I talk to, I say, would you want to be a politician right now? And the answer is no. I don't want to put my family through that. I don't want to put them at risk that way. I don't want that kind of scrutiny. And so we haven't done a great job of defining what excellence is in terms of leadership. And it's a moving target right now. And and uncertainty is bouncing all over the place for us. You know, our vulnerability hasn't really gone down, but we're more uncertain than we've been in decades. You know, we look at cultural changes in norms and values. We look at pandemics. We look at climate change. We look at all of these things, and it feels like the rules are shifting in a really rapid way. And what makes a great leader now is not the same thing that made a great leader a decade ago or two decades ago. All right, can you um, define that a little bit? Like, what do you think made a great leader a few decades ago then? What were some things that they did well? Well, they, they were able to sort of uh, harvest resources, put people in positions to be successful. But there's more of a command and control structure. They were able to kind of look forward and say, this is the direction we're going. And there was more of a mindset from most of us that they knew what they were doing and we we're headed in the right direction and we were going to move that way. We're seeing less confidence now in leaders because the future seems so unstable, right? We're seeing the rate of change is so pronounced that what makes a great leader now is, is getting everyone to pull in the same direction, collaboration, shared problem solving. I think leadership is becoming something that is no longer a single person sport. It, it's got to be a team of folks who are pulling together. I believe the more senior we become, the less direct control we have over outcomes. The more we rely on the people, you know, your, your leaders are not the ones going into the fire. Their success depends on what you do. And their goals and objectives completely depend on the people that they're leading. Some leaders don't get that. Yeah, I feel like some leaders, maybe this hypothetical thing you're talking about, it's it's like, I've got these goals. I want this ship to go this way. And like you said, it, it's entirely dependent on the crew on the ship. But when yeah. they don't, when the ship doesn't reach its destination like they wanted, it's not like, well, how can I figure out how to get the crew on the same page, how, you know, what's the problem here? It's no, the crew's the problem. Crew's the problem. Just keep, right. we're, we're still going there. Keep doing what you're doing. You're not doing what you're doing. Get out of here. Well, I think what I'm, if there's I can no, kind of no summarize, there's no dependency on, on, uh, I guess there's no appreciation for like, if I'm going to really get what I need done as a leader, I need the lowest guy in this organization to, be a top performer and I need to I need to make them feel that way too it seems like what you're saying is that if you want to be a successful leader you need to create stability within your organization so that everyone kind of knows where the ship is going and if I do this thing then this thing happens but what I I see happening in at least in the fire services the rules are changing every day and so people just right. are, are like well why try if every time that I, you know, try and do something, I'm either getting reprimanded for it or I need to look at, you know, for us, it's like we have a different boss, you know, kind of every day with our staffing model. We have one chief, obviously, but, you know, who, who is it and how do I need to act to make sure that I am uh, achieving the objectives that this person finds important as opposed to this common mission that we're right. all trying to push forward? Yeah, and that's that's a recipe for the worst possible environment, right? Because because I've just said that it's uncertainty times vulnerability. Well, the vulnerability doesn't change for you guys. You're, you know, our vulnerability at work, you know, you've got a heightened version of this because you're firefighters, but our vulnerability at work includes, you know, it's where we get paid, but it's where our friends are, it's where our aspirations are, it's how we pay the bills, it's it's where our vision of the future lies. There's a lot of vulnerability bundled into where we work. And so if uncertainty starts fluctuating all over the place, 
say with a new boss every day or the rules are changing all the time that becomes very very uncomfortable really fast what we start to see then is people trying to find ways to feel less vulnerable right they start to disengage they start to look for other alternatives the thing that keeps them there is their is their colleagues and their friends but they'll start to try to distance from that as well so that they're not quite as vulnerable would you say yeah. they're a, even a, maybe a better word might be they're looking for stability right yeah and so yeah, it's they're a trying very to suppress unstable that environment yeah and so you know we need to be more intentional than we've ever been in terms of building trust. It means that, you know, uncertainty comes from us as individuals and it comes from the context that we're embedded in. And so it's not just the individuals that you're dealing with, but it's the rules for the organization. And if those aren't clear, then everyone's kind of really unclear, uncertain, you know, the individual elements are, are benevolence, integrity, and ability. Those are three of the levers. I talk about sort of 10 levers we can pull to build trust with folks. And my guess is that in the situation you're talking about, all three of those are, are a bit suspect. The leader doesn't seem to have the best interest of the group at heart, or at least that's not the story that you, you're coming away with. They don't have integrity. Because there's so many different people, you know, integrity is the consistency of my actions that align with the values of the organization or the values that I express and following through on commitments. Well, if you've got a different leader all the time, that means that integrity is just inherently a problem. And then ability is the competence to be good at what they say they're supposed to be good at. Most times when I work with organizations, I'll sit in front of the senior leadership team and I'll say, who here is an excellent leader? And, and all the hands go up. But when I say, okay, great, what does that mean? It was just stunned silence, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. well, it just seemed like something I should think I'm good at. Sure. This episode is brought to you by us. More importantly, our Patreon. And most importantly, our Patreon members. If you like what you're hearing, think about joining us. Head on over to the-standard.us, and for as little as $3 a month, you can get extra episodes, discounts on gear, monthly conference calls. So head on over to our site at the-standard.us, and remember to always like and subscribe. That's the show. So I'm on your podcast right now. If we wanted to say what a great podcast guest was, I would start with my own notions but then I'd ask you, what makes a good podcast guest? And then we'd go further and we'd ask your listeners. We'd say, hey, what makes somebody a great listen? What makes you tune into the show? What 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 is it that's compelling about the standard? And what could Daryl bring to be excellent? So we should talk to all the stakeholders. Well, it's the same thing with your leaders. They should be talking to each other, but they should also be talking to you saying, what does great look like from a leader? Yeah, one thing in the... I think in the fire service is when leaders of organizations seek feedback, it's usually never from the actual members of the organization. Like let's do a poll of to see, you know, like let's hear from every member of what they think of the leadership, what they think they need more of, you know, it's always, well, what do the citizens say? What does city council say? You know, what do our bosses say, you know, for, for the, the leaders, mm -hmm. you know, and the best, you know, I had a, I had a training chief years ago and he's the first one that introduced to me the 360 eval, you know, asking your peers to tell you like what they need to do. Same rank peers, the men and women you serve, asking them, that has by far been the biggest, uh, I think resource and help for me as a leader. And, and I've seen help other people is you get that feedback from, from people that, you know, you supervise, that's a different story rather than feedback from your boss. Yeah. And, and we need it from multiple places. Now, if, if we switched and thought for a minute about the leader's perspective, I'm experiencing this with a lot of different leaders because uncertainty is so high for them as well, right? Because there's external things that are fluctuating all over the bloody place. They're uncomfortable being vulnerable. 
which means they're uncomfortable admitting that they don't know something, uncomfortable trying new things and making mistakes. You know, one of the big challenges is that I become a new leader. There's things that got me there, but those aren't the things that are going to make me great in the next role. And I need to let go of the things that I'm good at that got me where I am and step into those new roles and responsibilities, those new challenges that I'm facing. But as soon as I do that, I'm inexperienced. I'm going to make mistakes. And in a highly uncertain environment, they're struggling badly with that. I don't know if it's necessarily all the leader's fault, though. You know, it's uh, I like to think of morale as like mental health, that if you are, you know, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. And I think you hit kind of on that in your book that we as and Tom, Tom's my boss at work. And so, sadly, Sadly. he's upset about it, but too bad. Um, (laughs) But if I see an issue at work, it's not necessarily Tom's job to fix it or our battalion chief's job to fix it. I think we all need to, and and this is another thing that I'm seeing personally, is we're not taking enough responsibility to fix the things we can. We're just complaining about how our bosses aren't fixing the problem. And so to take a little bit of personal responsibility of, hey, I know this policy is bad, or I know that we're not super happy with the way things are going, but it's like, what can we do to fix the problem? Well, and, and so part of this is, you know, one of the things I find really powerful is shared shared vocabulary. So if we start talking about things like benevolence and integrity and and what does excellence look like in my role and in other roles within the organization, what is the context? Because those are the elements of uncertainty, right? The, the three levers around us as individuals, but also understanding the context. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So as Tom evolves in his leadership capacity and roles, the rules for him change. And to the extent that he's able to explain those to those that he's leading, it reduces their uncertainty about him. And part of the challenge we face is we interpret the world through stories. And if, if Tom has 10 people that report to him, there's probably six or seven different stories about why he's doing what he's doing or what's going on with leadership or the unit itself, where the, where the issues lie. And so part of our challenge is creating a shared narrative and creating an environment where we can actually have conversations. That seems like it's so, getting harder and harder with the shared con- with those yeah. conversations, because I mean, if you want to talk about vulnerability, it's like, I feel vulnerable even having tough conversations because I don't want to be, you know, canceled or I don't want to offend someone. And then it's like, well, I might not be offending someone now, but in five years, something I say, you know, now could be considered taboo. And so now I I don't even want to have any of those conversations, which, which doesn't help us very much. I mean, do you see an end to us being held responsible for everything we've ever said you know, I mean, regardless of yeah. our, our growth now. Yeah. And that's, that's a great point. I mean, it feels like there's no grace. Yeah. Right. I, I was, I was not the same human being at 16 that I am now. I mean, I grew up in a small town, right. I was, I was a bit of a redneck because that's where I grew up and that's what I had modeled for me. And that's, those are the values that I understood. And, and as I got out into the world, uh, and grew up and, and learned and, and evolved, I changed. And I I wouldn't agree with 16-year-old me right now. And so I think we're seeing a little bit of pushback against that. What that creates is such a sense of vulnerability because our vulnerability isn't some objective measure. It's, it's a combination of 
what we think is at stake and how we value it, but there's also inflations, you know, these linked outcomes. And so we can find ourselves feeling paralyzed. And I, I've told my kids, don't put anything on social media because, you know, you'll be held accountable 20 years from now yeah. or 30 years from now. Even if what you say right now is totally all right, it's totally okay. It may not be in 30 years. Or some phrase that you use that's popular right now might become, you know, frowned upon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um, feel like when we see this happen and we see an example, you know, you're watching the news or you read about it around the station, you know, say, oh, so-and-so did this, you know, 20 years ago and they either lost their position or whatever, you know, this is, this is in any profession. We look around and we go, shit, I did that. Yeah. You know, like... I don't do it anymore, yeah. but I did that too. Like I was an idiot. You know, so you you almost think like, man, I'm I'm like I don't have that much stuff published online from those years, but it's like you almost fear that I'm one find away from being, you know, grouped into that, you know, twenty years ago. That's a tough place to right. be. You know, so why you know, going back to your thing of asking people to be politicians. Of course, why would I ever want to be a politician? I mean, they dig up everything. everything. Every, they dig up everything. Yeah. They dig up everything on your dog. You yeah, know? But, like, but, but still, we you see have your, someone... We see your dog, you know, shit in the park, and you didn't pick it up, and, and it goes and it, it bit another dog, you know, 20 years ago, you know? But like, still, what? we have... What are we talking about? We have a politician here in the U.S. who got all the way to Congress on nothing but lies. Santos. Right. And, like, and now they're digging up all this stuff... And it's like, we want to have this trust in our leaders. And yeah, it's, it's okay that you make mistakes when you were younger, but then you have something like this come up and it kind of makes you distrust. I mean, I don't want to say everybody cause that's not true. Yeah, but, but I, I don't think any, in his case, yeah, I agree with you, but in his case, he doesn't deserve grace. But in, in other cases where, you know, like you're talking about, yeah. This, this happened when I was 16. Or but how I, do you make that delineation between... Because those are like two ends of the spectrum. But I think they're all being grouped together. And I think you have to... Like you said, they, they I think they can easily be delineated. I mean, st stuff that was that occurred in your life, it may have been wrong now, but at, at that time, it was more accepted. Mm. I mean, so looking are you, at are you still Yeah, are you still doing it? That's what matters. Yeah, right? do you still believe it? Yeah. And this is this is one of the challenges we saw with the pandemic where people said to medical pro professionals, hey, you're not saying the same thing you said six weeks ago. And the, the proper response was, we didn't know what we know six weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And what I said six weeks ago was what I knew best at that moment. And what I know best has now changed. But they didn't do that, right? And yeah, they doubled down. Yeah. In, Double down. They would it double seemed, down. Seemed like a right? weak, it seemed like a weakness if you have to say I was wrong when it's like, well, no, I made the best decision on the information I had. Now have, I mean, to me, it makes you more credible when you're like, I have new information and I had to adjust, mm -hmm. you know, my conclusion because yeah. of that. You know, it's like, okay, well, that's a person who wants to get it right. Right. That's the most important thing is they want to get it right instead of being right. Yeah. And that's, you know, even with my kids, when I, when I messed up, I would go back to them and I'd say, you know what? I didn't handle that the way I would have liked to. I messed up. And, you know, they, they would immediately, because we have such a positive, strong relationship, they would immediately say, oh, no, dad, it was my fault or I, I triggered you or whatever. And I'd say, you know, that, that's not an excuse. Here's how I would have liked to have handled it. They appreciate that. They do. They absolutely do, because I'm showing them that it's okay to fail and modeling, here's how we respond. And we're all terrified of being more vulnerable right now. And that's part of the challenge that we face. You know, I'm wrong often, right? There's, I have a lot of flaws. And part of what gives me the ability to connect well with people is the fact that I'm okay being vulnerable. You had an interesting um, kind of path that I, I don't think uh, a lot of us have ever had experience with, with you, uh, you're legally blind. And so, but you had yeah. sight when you were younger. Is that correct? 
Yeah. And so you had to, you were forced into vulnerability and having to rely on people a lot earlier, but I was, it seems, yeah. it seems like there, uh, you could either take your situation and, and, uh, my brother right now is going, he has star guards and he's slowly losing his vision. And, yep. you know, you have a choice of, Hey, I can be a victim and I can go down that path of distrusting everybody. And, but you went on to get your doctorate and now you're a professor and you've written books and, yeah. you know, uh, you have gone out and helped the military and, and big corporations work on trust. I mean, how did you choose to make that path to go the other way? You know, that's a good question. And, and I think sometimes a hard road's a good teacher. Mm. You know, sometimes it's just a hard road, but sometimes you go through those things and you experience vulnerability. You know, I, I had a tough upbringing. Um, my father lost his leg when I was about seven. He was in a, an accident, a car accident, lost his leg, cracked his pelvis, broke his hip, crushed a couple of vertebrae in his back. And, and he self-medicated with alcohol for the rest of his life because he was in pain. And so that led to some struggles. He had a grade eight education and I was someone who was going to live in his head for the rest of his life because I realized I was losing my sight. And then at 17, I got attacked by a fan with a club while I was playing hockey, beaten almost to death. So there, there's been these sort of series of events that have occurred in my life. And you're right, at every juncture, we have the choice to turtle and just sort of hunker down and, and never step outside again. Or we can say, okay, it didn't kill me. And now when I experience vulnerability, it doesn't scare me hmm. because I've been there. And we have a choice. You know, we interpret the world in, in, in terms of stories. We have a choice every day about what story we tell about ourselves. I, I could have a profoundly negative story about myself. You know, I'm legally blind and I've got post-concussion syndrome and, you know, don't have a lot of, a lot of hair left and I feel all bad. these yeah, things. Yeah, you right? feel I that. Craig's the same way. I also, no, no uh, hair. I suffer from that as well. <laughs> Follically challenged. <laughs> yes. So, so uh, you know, and, you know, this body doesn't just happen, guys. There's years of neglect that go that go into it. But um, so, so there's a negative story about me that could be told, but there's also a really positive story. And I have the ability to choose. And, you know, I wander the world with my guide dog, Drake, who's got the best brain chemistry on earth. Um, cause he just has a positive assumption about everybody we meet. I was wondering if you could, you could talk about, uh, your dog, Drake and yeah. you, know, you taught, you said his chemistry and immediately I thought of man to live life like a dog, right? Always happy. So forgiving, just yeah. love, love in life every day. Right. That's what my, uh, that's what I see in my dog. What does that do for you? Like, what what's your connect? Like, what level of connection do you have with Drake, and and what what does he do for you? I mean, you know, there's got to be a lot of things that he does for you. Just then, show you the way, you know, down the street. And there's a lot more to it, right? Right, there is, and I make clear to him every day that I wasn't involved with the decision to neuter him. Um, <laughs> it's like I'm going to lead you down so, this alley. Yeah. I've, I'm taking you into traffic, brother. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he and I have a really close bond. And he's profoundly changed my life. Because before, you know, I could see clearly a couple of feet. Uh, you know, actually, I can read things when they're about six inches away. After that, everything gets blurry. I couldn't see people's facial expressions or their body language or if they wanted to connect with me or not. Um and so I could feel profoundly alone in a crowd. And Drake actually brings people to us. And, you know, some people are really protective of their guide dogs. They don't want anyone to touch them. I'm the opposite of that. You know, if I'm just standing still, he's not working. And he's he's allowed to say hi to whoever he wants. And he loves it. He just loves people. And so people reach out and connect with us. He, 
allows me to not only move more quickly through the world, but to feel safe in a way that I didn't before. And so he's, he's very thoughtful about where we're going and how we're trying to get there. And when we're out, he is so profoundly attuned to me. You know, if, if, if I've got him sitting somewhere, people will say he just stares at you. Like the whole time, he's just focused on you and, and the fact that you may need him at some moment. And so there's a profound connection there. And it also allows me to, because people see us and they recognize, oh, this guy's got a visual impairment. And so they engage in a way that they don't normally. The dog, um, I think, Drake. And so Jake, Drake allows them to do that. I think. I mean, he does. I think it makes it makes it more the situation more approachable for sure. Maybe you know, maybe I figured it out. Well, maybe and, what we need in our hypothetical fire department is we need some dogs up there as leaders. Uh, they might do a better job. <laughs> <laughs> we need we need some Drakes. We need some Drake. Chief Drake. Can we borrowed Chief Drake. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Well, we would definitely be happy to come visit. That's awesome. Um, and part of the part of the challenge here for you guys is is if you're trying to work with this hypothetical situation. You know, what I do in settings that are so when you write a doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments, you end up being thrown into a lot of hostile environments. And so what I do is I'll ask one set of folks, what's the story? What do you think is going on? What's your narrative? And then I'll ask the other group, what's your story? What do you think is going on? What's the narrative? And then I'll bring them together and I'll say, okay, group one, tell me group two's story. Oh, and it provokes this level of empathy. And it allows for correction of misperceptions. And it's the starting of a shared narrative. You know, partly I've worked with a lot of different companies that you know, once we start to create a shared vocabulary, we're actually able to have conversations we couldn't before. Because when we start talking about uncertainty and saying, okay, so I don't really understand, you know, maybe, maybe you don't understand how Tom's evaluated or who's paying attention or what the rules are for his role. Once he starts to explain that, it becomes easier to understand some of the decisions he makes and his thought process that's going into it. Once you understand how he's being evaluated, it creates the opportunity for you to start to show benevolence as well. Right. So a lot of times what I do is I'll get people, I'll give them a template for a conversation and I'll say, okay, we're going to, we're going to talk about trust, you know, which is something we don't normally talk about because it feels uncomfortable, but you would be able to say, well, we were talking to this guy, Daryl, and he said that trust is the willingness to be vulnerable. And it's got this combination of uncertainty and vulnerability embedded in it. And it started me thinking about, Hey, here at the station, how are we vulnerable to each other? You know, and, and for us to succeed, we all need to pull in the same direction. And when we get into a dangerous situation or where lives are at risk, we need to be able to really rely on each other because not only are the people we're trying to save in danger, so are we, if we don't do this right. It seems like in our and, uh, profession, and maybe you saw the same in your experience with the military, but you're dealing with a lot of alpha type personalities where if you were yep. to uh, come into a, a firehouse and start talking about feelings and trust and vulnerability, I think it's a lot harder for those individuals to yeah. uh, buy in, I guess, to that. Um, yeah. So is there some other vocabulary you could use to have that conversation, but not necessarily come across as for lack of a better term like soft right so when apparently when Brene Brown was talking to the military to the special forces uh, they said we don't use the word vulnerability here um, and she said how about courage do you use the word courage and does courage exist without some level of vulnerability um, but we can talk about depending on each other uh, our reliance um how we work together, the ways we need each other to be successful and understanding what success looks like for each other. Because you're right, the vulnerability conversation is a hard one. And particularly for, for guys who are more alpha, they, you know, I was, I was dealing with this group from Eastern Europe 
And they said, real men never make themselves vulnerable. And I said, wow, that's, that's quite a perspective. <laughs> um, I said, cause I make myself vulnerable all the time. And you're now suggesting I'm not a real man. Oof. One of the students goes, yeah, yeah, I, I guess that's what I'm saying. I said, would you like to step outside? <laughs> and, and he goes, no, I said, uh, yeah. I said, a real man's able to be vulnerable. Let's say he's got the strength to take it. Ooh, I like that. Let's take the, that kind of thought into like marriage where yep. I think if you want to have a strong marriage and, and we're talking about um, having some grace for your partner and I mean, how, what, what kind of, um, what kind of position does that play in like having a successful marriage or, or personal relationships? It's a huge part of it. And I work with families often. I'm actually uh, next month going to work with a group that, that focuses on helping kids with developmental challenges. I think, you know, I've seen therapists use this approach of showing people the model and allowing them to have a conversation. And I've worked with couples before where we start talking about, you know, pulling these different levers, benevolence, integrity, ability, talking about the context that's the easier place to begin around uncertainty. And then when we start talking about vulnerability, it, it gets harder for us as a couple. But once we've sort of started these conversations, it's a natural progression. What I do with my courses and what I do with the book is I, I try to show people the levers so that they know what they are. Because people who aren't very good at building trust have a lever that they pull. And those who are better have multiple levers. Those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. And so imagine a benevolence conversation with your spouse, uh, your partner, where you're basically saying, you know, this guy, Daryl was talking about benevolence. He said, it's important. It's, you know, this belief that you have somebody's interest, best interest at heart. And I think I do that, but it doesn't always seem to land that way. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah. And Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, I don't think Just that I, everyone has, I don't speak the language that she needs to hear. And I think that's cause I can only, can only talk in a way that I understand. And that doesn't always work right. for everybody else. And so it's hard to understand the language that they need to hear as opposed to the one that I can speak in. Right. And this is part of the change that we see. You know, I've worked eight week programs, 12 week programs with with senior executives who have come back routinely and said, yeah, my spouse has really noticed the difference. And partly it's about surfacing some of these things. So so the continuation of the benevolence conversation is. Have you ever had somebody really have your back, really do what's in your best interest? And once they start to think about that, we're priming them, right? And we're getting hints about what does benevolence look like for them. And then we narrow it further and we go, what will it look like if I was benevolent? What does success look like for you? How do I help you get there? What matters most to you? You know, one of the examples I have is, is one of my students, because I'll sit down and try to problem solve real time with folks. One of my students, I said, I want you to focus on a relationship that matters to you. And he said, okay, my girlfriend. I said, great. So what matters most to your girlfriend? He said, I think her family. I said, all right, so tonight you're going to go home and you're going to say to your girlfriend, I was in this class today. He was talking about benevolence, saying it was really important. And and he asked me to think about a relationship that really mattered to me. And, and I thought about you. Step one, we're showing the other person that we think about them and, and we care about them and and that they're important to us. And I said, next, you're going to say to her, he asked me what mattered most to you. And I said, your family, is that right? Now you're giving the other person the opportunity to respond and correct you if you're wrong or come alongside and say, yeah, that really matters to me. I said, when she says, yeah, that really matters to me, you're going to say the following. You're going to say, since your family matters so much to you, I can only assume that it really matters that I get along with them. And so because it matters to you, I'm going to start spending more time with your family, having more conversations with them, trying to strengthen my relationship with them because it matters to you. And 
I said, there's your template. That's the conversation you're going to have with your girlfriend tonight. That's, I mean, that in my takes, head, I'm thinking he's having a good night. Well, no, it just takes a lot of not, not only empathy, but a certain level of openness to be hurt by yeah. showing that you don't not, you don't a hundred percent really know what's most important to her. You know, you're, you're opening and, yourself up to possibly, I don't want to say an argument because I don't think this conversation, this, that you're coming up with is going to go that way, but it, it very well could go negative. Cause just, they're like, well, why don't you know what's most important to me? I mean, you're, you're saying this and I'm like, man, I don't even know if I really know. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, well, would assume that my wife, what's most important to her is our kids, but I guess I'm going to have this conversation later this evening. <laughs> yeah. Cause the guy came back the next day for the, for the workshop and he said, my girlfriend says I'm allowed to talk to you anytime I want. <laughs> How do you, how how would you deal with, I feel like infidelity is the one thing that would break trust more than anything in a, in a relationship. Is there any way to come back from that? Well, I, so I agree with you. Infidelity is the big one. Uh, Screwing up with your kids would be another one, Mm. you know, leaving little Jimmy at the park uh, and wandering off. That would be big too. Um, There is. There is, but the other party has to be willing to work with you. Yeah. And in, in part, when we fail, we need to be able to come back to the other person and say, here's what I think happened. And here's how I think it impacted you. Because, you know, people are big on saying, let's have an apology. Well, that's not enough. Because we actually need to be able to say, here's how you were hurt by that. And try to understand their story. So try to engage that empathy. And then we also need to be able to say, and here's why, from my perspective, here's why it happened. Here's the things that led to it. And these are the changes that we could make to try to reduce the probability of it happening again. Our our tendency is to want to make a promise in that moment, right? To say this will never happen again. And that's a problem because of integrity, right? Well, you've made we that promise once before. Make... So, you know, I think, I, yeah. think, I think those are kind of empty words in those, in that situation. It's like, well, you promised me. Yeah, how is this different? You know? So, yeah. You know, I, I mean, show me, right? And that takes probably years. years again, I would think. So part of it is being able to say, so, you know, why, why are people unfaithful? Insecurity is one of the reasons opportunity, feeling neglected, low self-esteem. There's there's a number of reasons why we might step out. Being able to be honest in that moment, saying, you know, I, I just don't feel like I'm enough or things have seemed so distant lately. Like being able to, to take ownership of that and not place it on the other person and say, this is what happened. This is what's going on for me right now. These are the struggles I'm having. And this is what we need to start change. I would need to start changing in myself to reduce the probability of that happening again. So once we've started to show that we understand how the other person was hurt, we can make a more credible commitment to how we might move forward together. In less extreme cases, like a leader's situation. So maybe Tom does something that, that you're disappointed by. If Tom is able to say, look, I know you're disappointed and and I know that this is what that means for you, but this is why it happened. And this is how I was constrained. And these are the steps we can take to to reduce the probability of that happening in the future. That feels different. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about trust with with other people. What are your thoughts on uh, it's it's can be difficult to trust yourself sometimes and trust your gut. And how can you like build that muscle with yourself? Yeah. A lot of this is around self-awareness and the story that we tell. Right. So for me going, going in front of a crowd or, or uh, being on a podcast or those kinds of things has become easier and easier over time because of repetition. Part of the challenge when we step into a new environment is it's a little different. And there may be uh, places where there's where there's gaps in our knowledge or there's uncertainty that we're facing. 
but being able to go back and say, what are situations that are similar that I've been successful in the past? How can I visualize and prepare myself for the future? It's, it's really, again, about reducing the uncertainty. You know, you, you articulated some concern about admitting to your wife that you don't completely know everything that's going on in her head and, and everything that she cares about. Not even close. Yeah. Welcome to right? the club. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. Right. I got to tell you from, from experience, starting those conversations, you get incredible grace from the other party mm. because part of the thing that I do is I get people to pick a practice buddy to work on these trust conversations with. And I've had some type A's, a number of type A's who say, wow, I thought this was going to be bullshit and airy fairy and all, you know, let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya. That's, that ain't it. This is about having real conversations with people. I said, you know, I, when I first started, it felt like I was stretching a new muscle. Like I was, you know, awkward and uncomfortable. And it seemed obvious when you, when I started and then I got in there and I was like, Oh my God, this feels awkward. And they said, but the reception was so positive because when you tell people, Hey, your relationship matters enough to me for me to actually try for me to work on it, want to make it better, make it stronger. If somebody says, I don't want that, well, then it's a pretty clear signal that you're not going to be investing more time there. Right. But I don't think that's how your wife's going to respond. No, I don't think so either. I'm going to give it a shot. I think that uh, having those conversations with yourself first might be a great place to start where, you know, yeah. if, because, you know, inevitably that question is going to come back on you where, hey, what is the most important thing to you? And if you don't have a very good answer, you can't really expect them to either. Or or have that conversation and, together, you know. Oh, that's interesting. You know, if, before we dive into maybe what you need. Let's help each other figure out what we need ourselves, you know, first. Oh, yeah. it's like a, as a yeah, couple. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. No, that's a great insight, Tom. And one of the challenges is I, I would approach people and I'd say, benevolence is having someone else's best interest at heart. Tom, what's the other guy's best interest? And people would look at me like deer in the headlights. And both of them would be like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> It kind of reminds me of, you know, like so, when, when the wives or, the, or you know, wives always ask, you know, like, so what's going on with the guys at work? I don't know. So like, what's going on with his kids? What's going on with his wife? I don't know. Well, uh, are you guys even friends? Well, yeah, it seems well, we like talk it, every day. it doesn't, uh, it's not a very masculine endeavor to, you know, sit down and like really figure out how people are feeling. Get close to them. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, well, there goes the yeah, vulnerability, right? Because exactly, then they're yeah. going to ask you what's going on, and maybe things aren't sweet, right? Like maybe right. things aren't right. Like let's take you as an officer. I think I don't want to talk about me. I don't. I'm try, I don't want to talk about you either. <laughs> but uh, if I am being led by you, and your personal life is a shit show, I think you might feel like, well, I don't want to take away from their uh, ability to trust me because I have stuff going on at home that's not good, that you might not want to talk about that because you feel like that'll take away from your credibility when in all actuality, like what, what Daryl was saying, is like that adds to your credibility because you're willing to admit. And work on it. And, like you, and work you, on you it. Wanna, right? You want to find a solution. You don't want it to continue this way. Yeah. You know, asking for help isn't the worst thing. It's like, I think we've I think we found that you know, in some of our close relationships that going to a close friend and saying, you know, like, man, this is not where I want to be right now. How you got any suggestions to get out of it? Like I wanna solve I really do want to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. I think that helps way more than not even talking just about pretending it? it's not even there. Well, and I, I gotta tell you, when I when we do these parenting courses, one of the real benefits is you get a group of parents together and they go, Oh my god, it's not just me. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. we don't talk about it, right? And people are all all insecure that oh, I am a terrible parent. Um, my kid's a train wreck, and it's like no, they're all train wrecks, <laughs> right? Like, uh, just yeah. we're all just trying to cope. Yeah, you just know, trying to we, make it through. We got together and That's had right. a conversation about it. You know, I'm gonna put yeah. you. I'm gonna put you on the spot. No. Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay, uh, go, ahead. go for it. I was just thinking about that whole like trusting yourself 
and I think out of most people in my life, you might have the most like belief in yourself and the decision that you make. Like, well, I hope it goes back. Could... I hope it goes back to what Daryl's saying. I hope. I hope there's some. I hope when people th- say that of me, that I they also think that I'm very self, or that my assessment of myself is accurate. Yeah, I think so. I th- I think that's you know where your deficiencies are. I think are. that's where maybe that comes from. Is uh, I do feel like I know my strengths, I know my weaknesses, I know what I'm capable of based on past experience, and I don't try to maybe overshoot or outkick the coverage, so to speak, you know? So is does that come from, like we said, it's like a muscle? Do you think that it, you to get to that place of trusting yourself, you have to have all these past experiences, or can you... Can you- oh, I feel like... Feel like my my first initial thought when you're asking that is, I've seen others do that, overestimate their abilities, and it turned me off so bad that <clears throat> I just wanted to make sure I never did that. Mm. I don't know if that's a right way of looking at it or a right method of operation, but I just I've seen a lot of that, especially in our line of work, and it's like, okay, I'm not going to tell people that I'm this good and this good and this good when I'm actually not, you know? Yeah, but you have, like, an ability to stand up for others that I don't think a lot of other people do. And to to do that, to be vulnerable enough to, to step out on a limb for people, I mean, you have to have a certain level of, like, trust in yourself, right? Yeah. I mean, part of it probably stems... I think it goes back to a, a real feel of, like, fairness and consistency across across you know the way people are treated you know um i don't know yeah i mean i i do tend to stand up for people and and take take battles on when necessary but i don't know i don't know where that i mean is there i went back going back to even like my teenage years I, i i had a situation in high school where an administrator at our school had been fired and uh, I thought it was kind of messed up, and there was two sides to it, and I took a huge stand against that as as a student at the school. You know? So, Daryl, is that like innate in people? So, some of us are really protective. It's part of our personality. Um, you know, I had an older brother. I grew Fort St. John was a rough and tumble place when I grew up there, and my brother and his buddies were some of the toughest guys in in town in our age group. And they, I I walked beneath their protective shadow and I developed a real sense of, I don't like bullies. And if you want to trigger me and see me get angry, you'll pick on someone, Hmm. right. That can't defend themselves or, you know, somebody starts messing with my kids. I become a different person. You know, part of that is, is absolutely learned. We, we all learn and grow and evolve. Partly it's an individual trait that some of us have and some of us don't. Um, and there are pros and cons to each of these things, right? So uh, I can get blinded by certain things and respond in a way that may not be appropriate, right? You know, when my nine-year-old son is umpiring a bunch of six-year-olds and some coach is losing it on him, you know, right in his grill, yelling and screaming, and he says, the, the next sound I hear is the gate crashing open. <laughs> and you're, you're coming out to the mound. <laughs> I'm coming. Yeah. Right. Like I'm, I'm six, three, two forty and I'm pissed off. And, <laughs> and the, the coach looks up and I said, do we have a problem here? And he's like, Nope. Turns around. Walks away. <laughs> but that's um, exactly it. I think, uh, I'm going to probably tag on to that and say, I hate bullies. So it's like your protective nature. Well, it's just like pick on people that are weaker than you. That's, that's the weakest thing you can do, you know? Yeah. Like, you got a problem? It's cowardly. Like, it's totally cowardice. And I think when I see cowardice, it's like, all right, it's go time. Mm. You know, and I kind of enter this different space. Yeah. I mean, that, it's interesting you use that umpire and, um, scenario because it's like, what What makes a grown man get in the grill? Of a nine-year-old. Of, of a teenager, you know, yeah. or whatever. Like a young kid over a game. Like, are we, are we that inexperienced in life that... <laughs> That that's our answer. What is wrong? You know, and it's sometimes you look yeah. at like, well, I could react to that guy and, and go punch him in the face, but 
maybe a conversation. It's like, dude, you know, you, I think you go, there is a shock factor of like, like you said, going through the fence and be like, do we have a problem here? And then it, you know, it may be worth a follow-up conversation. Like, man, what's going on? Like, why would you, Yeah. why do you think that's acceptable? And maybe something else comes out. It's like, I don't know, man, you know, they just got other stuff going on or I just, I have this huge competitive nature and then it's like, maybe, well, maybe we just need to have a conversation of how you need to harness that better and, you know, know your role of where you're at in your life right now because you aren't the one competing. I feel like that is uh, horribly unCanadian of that person because I, I, whenever I like <laughs> imagine the Canadians, obviously you guys all wrote right. mooses to or meese to the game. Meese, come on, man. you know, moose, moose, plural, multiple moose, moose. moose. All right, well, you guys all rode moose there, and I would imagine that you guys yeah. be incredibly respectful. You know, I feel like. Yelling at a nine-year-old is, is an American thing to do. Maybe. Well, it was definitely <laughs> offside. It's, it's, it's definitely it's, offside. And it's happening here for sure. It is an Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I think uh, another thing is interesting about your story is, like, when you confront that bully, nine times out of ten, they're just going to walk away because they, they're they not used to that. Right. No. And uh, maybe that's part of the and, the, the... and the people you stand up for feel like you've got their back. Yeah. I mean, I, it might change their right? life. Actually. They finally, somebody acknowledges that I'm here potentially. Right. It's like, Oh yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I am important. I mean, I, that can be important, you know, but it's a powerful gift to give somebody. I, I do feel it. There is some gratification for standing up for what's right and what for other people. You know? Yeah. Well, that's not why you do it. I think it's a byproduct, but like, you're not going out there for the gratification of, of writing wrongs. It's like, it's like innate in, in you and, and Daryl, you know, like I refuse to stand by while something else. Uh, oh, well, like this injustice happens. Right. Right. Know? And I don't know if inju- sometimes injustice, you know, that can be a little bit of like a big, a heavy word yeah. for some of the stuff that, that we deal with, but it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to just let this keep going. Right. You know, one of the challenges we face though is, as men in general, we struggle to ask for help. Why do you think that is? Right? The vulnerability and thing? It's the vulnerability thing. And, you know, I was working with a group of senior executives and we were talking about benevolence. And I said, tell me stories of when you've had someone's back or helped someone. And the whole group is t- telling these stories about how they made an impact on someone's life. And the, the feeling in the room is just buzzing, mm-hmm. right? Everyone's got smiles on their faces. They're all really feeling good. And I said, this is fantastic. Now, if you could just explain why you're so effing selfish. <laughs> and that they, kills the they mood, Daryl. What? <laughs> and, and I said, you've just told me how powerful it is to help someone, but you never give anyone the opportunity to do that for you. You never ask for help. Yeah, I had a buddy and... who, uh, who was very much that way. And he said, because I was like, I don't want your help, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, never deny someone the opportunity to bless you. And so I think the the other half of that is you need to be able to allow people to help you as opposed to any time that yeah. they want to, you shut them down because you're too proud. I, I've, I've done that multiple occasions. But when when he told me that, I'm like, oh, this is this is my way that I can almost help that person help me kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's you're... the gift that Drake and I bring in, in the world a lot of times where people are able to feel really good about themselves because they've helped us. Yeah. It's a, you know? it's an awesome gift you can give someone. So, you know, I was sitting at the airport in Denver traveling I, through. I was I'm going sorry. from one place to another. So, so bad. So I'm so sorry. <laughs> It used to be cool, and now it's now not what, so much. Third busiest, and you feel it every time you go through the security line. Yeah. So I, I'm sitting there, and this huge black guy comes up, and he says, "I just want to say hi to your dog." And I said, "Sure." And he sits down next to me, and he and Drake have this wonderful moment together. And his his fiance comes up, and she goes, "Come on, we we got to go." He says, "I'm hanging out with Drake." <laughs> And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so he he has his kind of 15 minute dose of Drake time and then they get up and leave and immediately this this uh, Mexican woman comes and sits down next to me and says, I'd just like to say hi to your dog. And I swear to God, I had five people in a row. Every time the seat opened up, somebody else came and sat down next to me. 
And it was just this moment of stress relief for them and this moment of giving, right? Where they were able to have this positive moment in the middle of the Denver airport, which can be a stressful place. And, you know, we reciprocate a lot where we're able to say to people, hey, I'm kind of stuck. I don't know exactly where I'm going. Could you give me a hand? Or I just pause for a moment and and look lost, which is not hard for me. <laughs> uh, and people will come up and start wanting to help, right? The world's actually a beautiful place if if we're able to signal to each other and and accept and give help in ways that are meaningful. That's awesome, Daryl. We we really appreciate you coming on the show. You obviously have your book, you have your website. Anything else coming up, or or anything you'd like to plug? So I hope that people buy the book and not just buy it, but read it and start applying the concepts. You've read the book. I would, you should share it with your wife. So you guys have the same vocabulary. People can go on the website, trustunlimited.com. There's, there's lots of articles in the blog section. And I've got a masterclass that I've launched that talks people through some of these concepts and how to pull the levers that we talked about today. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And uh, give, give Drake, Thanks for having me, give Drake a pat on the head for us. Give him a big T-bone nice. steak. Just, just, <laughs> this is from Tom. This is from the standard. <laughs> <laughs>